This is John Hulsman, and welcome to our flagship Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we deal with the political risk issues of the day in this new, exciting, and tumultuous era. And today we're going to go back and have a look at Ukraine. It's been a while, and I think we should have an update on what's going on, because there's a coming political crisis for the West based on Putin's game plan, which I think is increasingly clear. Uh, Putin has kept his strategy intact, which is to take over the whole of Ukraine, or certainly to at least politically dominate it, if not to annex all of it, um, and at a minimum leave it a basket case. Remember, there are three possible outcomes for Putin. One, it just becomes part of Russia. Two, it's a dominated, unhappy basket case. Or three, it becomes pro-Western. He must not have it be the last because of his czarist theory of strategic depth that we've talked about at length before. But what he's done is adopt, adapt his tactics. The strategy stays the same. Putin is a chess player, chess players in international relations. And I wrote about this in my last book, To Dare More Boldly. Chess players retain the same strategy, but they're open to very flexible tactics. And the all-out assault to take Kiev in two days and all of Ukraine in two weeks was an obvious failure for all the reasons we've gone into before. But Putin hasn't changed his strategy. He's just adapted his tactics. He's taken care of some of the problems that emerged from the ill-fated assault on Kiev. First, he's made the supply lines much more simple. Russian supply chains and logistics have been the bugbear of the Red Army since the days of World War II. The Russians are strong at artillery and tanks, and they're weak at logistics. And this has traditionally been the case for the Army and remains so today. And what you've seen Putin do is make, make the lines of communication much more simple. What he's managed to do is say that, look, we're going to go for a contiguous land, land bridge in the south, connecting Rostov-on-Don, a major city in Russia, which can easily supply the Donbass, um, Luhansk and Donetsk, which all of Luhansk is now under Russian control de facto, and a good portion of Donetsk, but that's where the fighting is going to be moving to, and connecting up Rostov-on-Don to Mariupol to Crimea in the south, uh, making the Sea of Azov a Russian lake and controlling a good portion of the Black Sea. And this is contiguous and takes care of his problems of logistics. Also, the assault ahead in Donetsk is straightforward. It's typically Russian. There's no strategic imagination of any kind. This is Marshal Zhukov, a whole bunch of casualties. And as Stalin said, at a certain point, quantity becomes quality. If you have an advantage in artillery of 10 to 15 to 1, as the Russians do over the Ukrainians, it may be inferior. Your tactics may be inferior. Your army may be inferior man for man, as was true in World War II, where no one was so as efficient as a German soldier, but still they lost because of the overwhelming numbers of the Russians and the material that came from the Americans. And now we see the same, that Russia is just pounding unimaginatively uh, Luhansk into the ground, Severodonetsk into the ground, and is moving from Luhansk into Donetsk. And until the, the Ukrainians receive resupply, this will continue to be the case. And in fact, the Ukrainians are in desperate need of ammunition. They're almost through all their Soviet-era stuff, the stuff that they had and that they've acquired from very sympathetic Central and Eastern Europeans, such as the Poles and the Baltic states. They're through all that, so now they're having to adjust, and they want armaments and ammunition coming from NATO, which is much more modern kit, works very well, but they're going to take time to have to work the artillery, learn how it works. The shells are different sizes, and recalibrating all this takes both material, and there hasn't been nearly enough of this from Europe. Uh, 
According to Kiel University, Germany's only supplied about one-third of what they've promised, and from the United States. The United States has been borne the mother load of the, of the munitions here. They've given the Ukrainians well over half of what they've acquired overall and more than all of Europe put together, which is shocking, no good, because this crisis is a second-order crisis for the United States, but a primary crisis for the Europeans who don't seem to yet be quite awake from history. But this is the situation, and Putin is banging ahead. There are limits to how far he can go. There are limits to how much territory he can control. Remember that Ukraine is a country larger than that of France, and the Russians don't simply have the ability to bang all the way through into western Ukraine. And even if they did, they certainly couldn't pacify an area virulently pro-Western, unlike the eastern-speaking portions, which have been fought for so ferociously in Ukraine, they'll do even less well in the western portions of the country which speak Ukrainian, and since the Austro-Hungarian Empire have a strong pro-Western tilt and can be easily resupplied from Poland, Romania, and the Baltics. And so the idea that they can they can they can bite off all of Ukraine in, in, in one chew is, is just not true anymore. They know that, and so this is a limited objective campaign. What, what Putin wants to do is solidify control of that contiguous land bridge from Crimea back along the Donbass to Mariupol, through the Sea of Azov, the Donbass, and back to Rostov-on-Don. He wants to control that. Um, and then I think that what comes next becomes political and diplomatic rather than military. But again, it's all part of the same strategy, because as, as Clausewitz put it very well, the Prussian theorist, uh, military tactics are just politics by another means. These are all the same thing. The strategy is to take over all of Ukraine. Putin's realized like a snake, he can't swallow the creature in all in one bite, so he's willing to take a series of bites to do so. But this will actually suit him politically. So they're going to bang ahead. They're going to take mass casualties. They're going to win ugly, as we've been saying now correctly in our political risk prediction for months. And again, kudos to the team who've gotten Ukraine spot on, unlike so many of our competitors, Mr. Bremer, I mean you. Um, we've gotten this spot on. They're going to win ugly. They're going to win the way they won in Chechnya. They're going to flatten places like Mariupol and several Donetsk to the ground. And they're going to continue in to Donetsk itself and try to take this by hammering away. This is going to take months. This is not going to happen immediately. And indeed, the Ukrainians will start receiving some of these NATO supplies and American artillery and howitzers. And this is an artillery battle at the moment where the Ukrainians are outnumbered 10 to 15 to 1. That may get a little bit better in the summer as they receive American wherewithal, which is both high tech and more of it. Um, and so that will go on and they will continue banging ahead until they take all or most of Donetsk. And then I think we move into the realm of politics because I think Putin then senses an opening. So far, everything strategically and geostrategically has gone against the Russian president. This is one of the massive strategic miscalculations of recent history. He's managed to unite NATO. No more talk about NATO being brain dead. And indeed, today, with a deal done with Turkey's Erdogan, Sweden and Finland will be entering NATO immediately. These are countries that, in the case of Sweden, have been neutral since Bernadotte turned on Napoleon in the early 19th century, and Finland since Mannerheim led the Finnish defenses so gallantly in the Russo-Finnish war. So in one case, centuries, in the other case, decades, and now all that's gone, they see the writing on the wall, and they want to join NATO. Putin has revived NATO. No more Macron talk about it being 
brain dead. He's also woken up the Germans, okay, in fits and starts, not perfectly, but they're aware that they can no longer sup with the Russian devil, that the spoon is simply not long enough, that they're in huge energy difficulties as they diversify away from Russian supply, that they have to spend real money on defense. I mean, at the moment, the, the Germans have roughly three days ammunition in Ukraine-style fighting. Shamefully, they've taken a holiday from history under the soon-to-be-historically-condemned Angela Merkel, the Stanley Baldwin of our story, who, again, Mr. Bremer made into some sort of world historical hero when what she really was was an appeaser. And now she's paying, sadly, Germany's paying the bill, but they've awoken Germany to actually spending money on defense, 100 billion euro to begin to upgrade their shameful lack of wherewithal, and then 2% of GDP, which is the NATO target we've all been begging the Germans to spend, in my case, since 1999 for my entire professional life, only to be met by arrogant Germans who should now be fired, who told me they didn't need an army, war was obsolete, it would never occur in Europe, and they knew how to handle the Russians, all historical examples to the contrary. And now they've woken up. So he's awoken the German giant, unified NATO, unified the West, that the Europeans are now firmly back in the American camp, and made himself Robin to China's Batman. None of this does Putin want. And so he needs to win on that geostrategic big picture scale if he's going to mount any sort of comeback. So the goal is to take this mini bite, take over the Donbass, have the land bridge, and then declare victory. This will be enough that he can go back to his people and say our limited military action, which is what he is careful to always call the war in Ukraine, a limited military action, has been successful. Now, why does he call it a limited military action? Well, this is very simple. He calls it a limited military action because if he were to have conscription in Russia, that wouldn't mean this is a little minor difficulty. That would mean huge mistakes have been made and average Russians now see their children call up to fight in Ukraine when they were told they were met with flowers. Instead, they've been met with fierce resistance. This would make Putin unpopular. And he's desperate, obviously desperate, to avoid conscription. That's why the, the, the words, as Umberto Eco would say, the semiotics, the words show the thinking. And that's what's happening here. He has to say it's a limited military uh, matter or he would be in real trouble because conscription would lead to unpopularity and could lead to his overthrow eventually. And that is something he certainly doesn't want to countenance. So this will be limited. He will bang ahead for months. He will eventually take Donetsk probably or the lion's share of it. He will have Luhansk. He will have the land bridge. And then he will declare victory. He will say to his people, look, it was limited. We've won. We declare a unilateral ceasefire, and our troops will go into defensive positions. They will dig trenches, as they have already in the Donbass, and they will dig in. This will be enough to domestically secure his support. Again, he's still popular. The war is popular, as the Levada Institute heroically me measures. 60 to 70 percent of Russians still support Putin in the war. It's an overwhelmingly positive number. But this also takes that draft option, which could be a stake in his heart, off the table, and better still, it shows the disunity in the West. Because at the moment, everyone's unified around the idea that we have to help the Ukrainians. It's all hands on deck. Nobody thought the Ukrainians would put up the fight they did. And indeed, the CIA were sent in to extract Zelensky when he famously and immortally said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, and found his inner Churchill. And most people, including the overpaid, underrated, 
or overrated, overpaid American CIA and intelligence people got this entirely wrong. And Zelensky has proven to be formidable. So it's all hands on deck. Everyone's in favor of Ukraine. And isn't that easy? But if you look just beneath the surface, there are gigantic divisions within the West over Ukraine. There aren't even two divisions. I think it splits more naturally into three. And the three divisions are simply the Eastern Europeans and to some extent the British, who are nonsensically getting ahead of themselves here, Poland, the Baltic states saying, not only do we have to give Ukraine everything that they possibly could want, we need to consider things like a seaborne mission to secure food supplies out of the Black Sea. We need to think about a no-fly zone. We need to think about giving Ukrainians offensive weaponry. And we need to push the Russians back to where they were at least in 2014, but before all this happened, and maybe all the way back to the Russian border. That's the rollback hardcore position. Then there's the United States under Joe Biden, which has adopted the Franklin Roosevelt position that we're an arsenal for democracy, that the United States will give Ukraine all aid short of war. Both of parts of that sentence matter. The United States will open its financial checkbook and will write Ukraine check after check after check um, and give them weaponry to the tune of what no one else can supply or chooses to supply. But, and here's the big but, we will never go eyeball to eyeball with the Russians. We will not countenance a seaborne no-sea zone or a flying no-fly zone for the simple reason that a no-fly zone would require the capability to shoot down Russians. And we will not break the Kennedy rule of nuclear deterrence, which is that nuclear-armed superpowers do not go eyeball to eyeball with each other. Sure, they fight proxy wars as the United States armed the Mujahideen or the Russians armed the North Vietnamese to the hilt, but we do not directly confront each other because that makes nuclear war just too possible for anyone to countenance. So we're not going to do that. So it's a lot of involvement, but limited involvement. It also, Biden has hesitated on handing over offensive weaponry. This is beginning to erode as the Americans experience their usual example of mission creep, but initially Biden and the Americans were against giving the Ukrainians offensive weapons. We want them to hold the territory they have to maintain the integrity of the Ukrainian state, but we're not for rolling anybody back, which becomes very dangerous, takes an awful lot of money, an awful lot of time, and an awful lot of political risk. And then the third group are the peace at any price people. The European Council on Foreign Relations had a very interesting survey out this month where they looked at two extreme examples and then let people choose. And one is called peace and one is called justice. Obviously, these are both goods and you have to trade off often in foreign policy about these two goods. And an overwhelming majority of citizens in Germany, Italy and France, the core of the EU, want peace at almost any price, even if the Ukrainians have to give up territory. So in other words, whenever the Russians can be stopped, we should stop because it is, of course, the, the Western Europeans that are losing out in trade terms with the Russians that are having to entirely recalibrate their energy policy in the height of a, of a recession and that are experiencing vastly higher costs in energy, which are filtering down into general inflation that have instability on their border. And all of this is out of their control. And so the big three, France, Germany and Italy, have citizenry that at least are for peace at almost any price. So the minute the Russians can be stopped and we've upheld our honor with the Ukrainians in some sort of general way, that's it. However much territory the Russians have gained will in effect have the Minsk process again. We'll codify Russian gains while limiting them in theory. 
Well, these three positions have almost nothing in common. As you see, they are entirely different strategic takes on what to do about Russian adventurism in Ukraine. And as Putin has sensed and felt this out, remember the guy was a pretty capable mid-ranking KGB officer in Eastern Germany when he began to make his name. This divides the West. So what you do is you take the Donbass, you put your hands up, you tell your people, we've won, we've stopped, that's all we want, and you wait for the West to fight with itself. To get ahead of this, the West now ought to be in the business of using the NATO meeting for what NATO is best at and gets the least attention for. It's a great clubhouse to codify and ameliorate differences, strategic differences. You close the door, you have a whiskey, you talk to each other and say, how can we reach a common position between the three of us? Because the Eastern Europeans and the Brits have one rollback view. The Americans want to be the arsenal of democracy. And the EU centrists want peace at almost any price, given that they're paying indirectly the costs of the war. And there are no positions in common here. And if this were to happen relatively quickly, there won't be. So this NATO meeting, forget the headlines. These guys should be sitting back in the clubhouse saying, what happens next? That's the only way to get ahead in business, government, anything, is to see what's going to happen next and act accordingly. Because this is a diplomatic trap that Putin is about to try to spring on the rest of us. Seeing these weaknesses, the goal of a KGB officer is to heighten differences within the Western alliance. And this is the old KGB playbook. And Putin is just going back to his comfort level and making the best of this. And to do that, what is he going to do? He's going to try to divide the three. So they ought to use the NATO clubhouse to try to reach some common position. I would imagine rollback is out. And I would imagine that immediately ceding uh, to Russian acquiescence and saying, that's it, they're done. We believe them. That's out. That a middle position will be somewhere along the American lines and bring everyone in. And again, that'll, like all compromises, lead to very little satisfaction, but everybody can live with it. The Western Europeans probably will have to live with being an arsenal of democracy, with the fight continuing, and with the Ukrainians deciding how long and how far they're willing to fight along these borders. And, and the Eastern Europeans have to accept that somehow burning Moscow down, the dream of every pole, is off the table because we have nuclear considerations. Russia remains a great power, and that's simply not going to happen, and nor are we going to put the alliance into danger where we have to go eyeball to eyeball with a nuclear-armed Russia. The middle ground of bankrolling the Ukrainians seems to be where we're heading. But there's a gigantic but in all this. That may work for now, and that would be a perfectly good way to evade Putin's trap. But will that work in two years? Remember, Putin has an almost limitless game plan that's really just dependent on his health. As long as he's there, he'll, he can continue and he can take a longer view. The problem is that stagflation is setting in in Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the UK, and the United States. Are the American people going to be willing to bankroll to $40 billion a pop a Ukraine that is only a second-order military problem indefinitely with Joe Biden's approval rating being about that of Charles Manson at the moment. He's below 40%, which is really the baseline when presidents begin to cease to be relevant, when they lose control of the agenda. The latest Real Clear Politics numbers 
have Biden at about 39% approval. There's going to be a shellacking in the midterms. The Democrats will lose at least, at least 30 seats in the House, we predict. And remember, we got 2020 spot perfect to the senator. And we predict that they'll also lose control of the Senate by one or two seats, which is skewed more in their favor. So you're going to have a hostile Congress wondering what in the world are we spending $40 billion on to an obviously corrupt country, giving them wherewithal without any real accounting of it, and how long are we going to make this second-order priority our own? All of that, by the way, I agree with. It is a second-order priority, and there ought to be real limits to what we give the Ukrainians. Defensive equipment, yes. Offensive equipment, absolutely not. Enough is enough. This is a second-order problem. If the Europeans want to pony up more, and they should, they ought to do so. But that's up to them. But you can see this beginning to fray after the midterms as there's pressure on Biden to stop writing a blank check for Ukrainians when he's not that concerned about the opioid crisis in the United States, which kills half a million people a year, or the American border, or what inflation is doing to the working poor in the United States. It's a very bad take and look for a candidate already in desperate trouble. So the West's political problems are going to give Putin an opening. And I imagine that's what's going to be the next field of call as we continue to look ahead, unlike policymakers. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this about what comes next, what Putin's game plan is and the West's coming crisis. I think we've laid it out very well. Again, the goal of this in political risk is to always be at least a step ahead and see where we're heading. And so far, I think we've guided you perfectly through this Byzantine maze without meeting the Minotaur yet. And so we will continue to do so. Those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. So many of you have, and we're grateful that our little local paper catches fire on Substack, which is a wonderful way to look at the world where I can directly talk to our community without the buffer of any editors getting in between us. And those of you who have subscribed, please do give. Again, I'm about to have my coffee for $70 a year or just $7 a month, the price of one of my fantastic espressos. $70 a year, we can continue to give us the flagship of Around the World in 20 Minutes, the Foreign Policy blog on Monday, the Culture on Tuesday, where we're looking at 60s albums you need to listen to before you die. The next one is If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears, The Moms and the Papas is next. We have JL Ryder and the Society Battling All Things Woke on Thursday, and The Economics by my friend Publius with his unique take on how to look at the world economically on Friday. For all this content, we're only asking the price of an espresso, $70 a year, so please do give. And on that note, off to the espresso. Have a great day.